The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. See, now we're part of an unshakable kingdom. Now, Josh on Sunday afternoons has hit this unshakable kingdom a couple of times as he's been looking at our position in the book of of Colossians. Does anybody remember what that kingdom is? It's a kingdom of priests. It's a kingdom of priests. So we have received this unshakable kingdom. It says... Let us have grace. Some of your Bibles say let us show gratitude or different things like that. But literally, it's let us have grace. So in other words, avail yourself of God's grace in this, through which then we do a priestly service. And that word priestly service or service, some of your Bibles are simply going to have, is the word uh, latruo, and it's built off the word laos. Now, laos was a word for people. So when a priest did service, there were two key words for his service. There was, there was the liturgeo service. That was the work that went towards God. Then there was the latruo service. That was the work that went towards the people. So the priest had a Godward service and a peopleward service. He's doing both of these. And he says, let us then do this priestly service. Now, the thing is, we just look at that. And we just think it's service. And our Bibles then make it look like it's service to God. Uh, in there, except what it says that it is well-pleasing to God, is what he actually says. Though some of your Bibles, and the English Bible I was looking at when I was going over these verses, it was said it's priestly service to God that is acceptable. But it's actually service to people. And the first century readers that were reading this in the Greek that Paul writes it to them, they would have understood right away when he says this that he's talking about the people side of our priestly service. In fact, in reality, most of the time when you look at the priestly service, the sacrifices and such that we do, most of the time for us, that actually is people-oriented. Most of the time, that's what you're going to find. And and then he says, to do that then with, and we have down there, godly reverence and awe. Actually, the word reverence is, uh, it's a word that's translated, I think Jim hit this word at least one Sunday when he was looking at this, the term that's translated godly. But this is not eusebia. This is eulabice, which literally meant to take well. And what it meant was is that when you had responsibilities, you exercised great care, great caution in what you did. You, were, you went about doing it the way you were supposed to do it. Okay. My son-in-law the other day had to put something up at his house and he's standing at the kitchen counter with a set of instructions for how this thing is to be installed. And my wife said, hey, he's looking at the instructions. Maybe you should stand at the counter and look at that. And they said, well, that's your first mistake. You never read instructions. And in reality, the funny thing was, is when you read the instructions, they didn't make sense. And you could tell that there were a number of things that were written by somebody that obviously does not speak English as a native language. That was for sure. Uh, there was, I could, oh, the, there was one phrase in there. I was laughing so hard the way they had it worded. I was like, man, I suppose to them, maybe that made sense, but that's, that is not what they meant to say. But that taking great care, it's as though you have a set of instructions. 
and you follow those instructions carefully, okay? You follow those, care, those instructions carefully, and then you do it with fear also. And it's a different word for fear. It's actually the kind of awe fear. It's not phobos fear. It's a, a, a deo fear, and it's a, a fear that just kind of makes you stand and tremble. In fact, our Bibles say awe. Um, I, I grew up in a generation where people began to use the word awesome, awesome. And then that really took off probably after I was after I got out of college, then that really had taken off. And now people use awesome. I think people still use it. Usually when something's pretty incredible, I'm like, wow, oh, that's awesome. But the word really literally meant to be in fear of something. Something was awesome, was something that caused you tremendous fear. And he's trying to say here, when you carry out this service towards other people, you just don't kind of do it haphazardly and carelessly. You take great care in following the way it's to be done, number one. And number two, you have fear. You have this real serious respect for what you're doing. It's not just kind of a haphazard, casual matter. And then he says at the end, verse 29, for God indeed is a consuming fire. Meaning, just like he was, this, the truth it is still true what he did when he came down on Sinai with Israel, and those people were terrified. It still remains true God ain't messing around today either. Yes, we may be under grace. But, well, we're going to look at one example in this context here in which he's going to basically say, God, God ain't going to mess around with this. You guys do the right thing here. Now, when he talks about this priestly service, the nice thing about this is we come into chapter 13, we have a chapter break, and chapter breaks are sometimes, uh, they cause problems for us because they they make us make a mental break. And there's, there shouldn't be a mental break because what he's going to go into in chapter 13 now are some examples of priestly service. So take a minute, look down through here, and give me some examples of priestly service. See if you can recognize. What are some examples of priestly service in the following verses? What did you say? So Stan's picking this up. All of these things are examples of priestly service. Let's keep your finger here for just a moment. Turn back to chapter 10. You have your tough time keeping your finger there? <laughs> back in chapter 10, in verse 25, what is one of the problems that some of these people are being tempted with, and apparently some had already hmm, some had already engaged themselves in. What does it say there in verse 25? Not abandoning. Yeah, not abandoning, not forsaking, not abandoning the getting together or the gathering of ourselves. And that word, interestingly enough, you because you, you don't see it in, in English. But that word gather together is built off of the Greek word sunagoge, that we get the word synagogue from. And synagogue was the Jews' word in Greek for their gathering. It's 
kind of equivalent to our word ecclesia in assembly, but that was their assembly. And this is built off of that. So he says, don't abandon, don't give up on yourselves getting together as the habit of some is, but rather encouraging one another. And in fact, if you went back to verse 24, it says that you ought to be mindful of one another, stirring one another up unto love and to good works. He says, that's what you ought to be doing. But how do you do that if you avoid getting together with believers? If you avoid getting together with believers, you can't encourage them. You can't be used to stir them up to love and good works. You need to be with them. And if you are with them, then these are the things you ought to be doing. So, with that as a kind of as a background again, is what he's talking about with this priestly service. If you go back to chapter 13 and verse 1, the first thing he says is let brotherly love continue or let it abide. Agape love, agape love will cause you to exhaust yourself, cause you cause you to uh to go out of your way, to self-sacrificially love, to love somebody even if it costs you something, to do what's best for them. That's what agape will do. Philadelphia is really just, it's, it's as we've said before, kind of the distinction is it's really that part of love that is really the very friendly, warm love. Now, that's not saying that there isn't, can't be any friendliness or, or warmth in the agape, but the emphasis on the agape is the service. It's on doing something for somebody. And sometimes, if you went back to chapter 12, sometimes agape, especially when it comes in the form of discipline, is not joyful for the moment. It can be miserable. So if somebody has to come and get after you and say, hey, this isn't the way we do this. We need you here. We don't need you deciding you're going to do church at home. You're going to stay away because you don't want to deal with problems. That might not be joyful for that person to hear. Probably it's going to make them uncomfortable. And so agape can do that. Philadelphia, philos love that he uses here, it's going to be that warm love. And he says, let it abide. Let it remain. That word remain, let it continue in some of your Bibles. It's meno. Be, be comfortable with that. It ought to be something that is normal that you want to be together. Now, I always think about that when you think about these believers who, had, who were in a hostile environment where they had these unsaved Jews around them that were making their lives miserable, that had taken some of their property, were kicking them out of their good jobs to their ditch-digging jobs or whatever it might be, and they were doing this kind of stuff to these people at this time, that it's like you needed to be able to come home at the end of the day. And coming and assembling with believers should be not a drudgery. It should not be something where you're going, oh, we ought to get together with believers. Oh, oh. You ought to be able to come and say, I'm coming to get together with friends. I'm assembling with family. It's not a, it's not a family word. It's not the store day word. But nonetheless, it is getting together with the friends. Secondly, verse 2, he says, and do not neglect, do not let it escape your attention, hospitality, which is built, the word hospitality in Greek is built off the base of the word for brotherly love in the previous verse. 
But part of friendship and part of the way that we serve others is not only that we show this warm friendship love with them, but we also we show hospitality. Make them, welcome them to our home. Make them feel at home in our home. We, we, we take what we have and we share that with them. And again, think about these people in this culture who don't have a lot of resources now because of problems. So they don't have a lot of money. They're probably meager on food and yet they still share. I always think of the what Paul says about the uh, Macedonian believers, people from Philippi, when he writes the Corinthians, who are a wealthy church, and he says of the Philippians that they were extremely generous, and they begged, they begged us to let them participate in this. And it's like Paul's looking at their poverty thinking, you got five kids, you can barely feed them, and you want to take those resources and help these other people. I can't take your money. <laughs> but they insisted. They begged for that. So, so sometimes it's easy for us to think that, well, we show hospitality if we, if we have resources. If, if we've got a lot, then we can do that. And uh, no, you just, you're hospitable with, with, with whatever you have. If you have little, you're hospitable with the little you have. If you're a lot, you're hospitable with the lot that you have. You welcome people into your home. If all that, if all you have to offer them is a dirt spot on the floor to sit, then you welcome them to your home to sit in a dirt spot on the floor with you. To sit on lawn chairs if that's all you've got. You, you, you just, you welcome them and you do that. And he says, and don't neglect this. He makes a statement at the end of that for through this, through this, there are some that it is, it is, miss their attention. It's actually the same word that's used for do not neglect. It's built off of that anyway. It says that they have entertained angels, but it escaped their attention. They didn't know that's what they were doing. My personal opinion is, is I don't think he's meaning what people think of as angels because the word angelos simply means a messenger. And there probably were people that were passing through these areas that were being sent on official business on behalf of the church, sent to take care of different things. And they come through and there were some believers that they, these were just believers. They weren't believers showing up. Hey, I'm a believer. And I was just, I, they said, maybe I could stay with you tonight. And they were going, well, uh, oh, by the way, I've been sent on this job for, oh, well, okay, then you can come in now. No, they, they just welcomed them when they said they were believers. They didn't have to identify the fact that they were being maybe sent by the Apostle Paul. When you read the end of Paul, some of Paul's letters, you see how many people he had sent off in different directions to take care of different things. And the other churches that had sent things, such as the church at Philippi that sent Epaphroditus over to Rome with things for Paul. And as he traveled, where did he probably stay? Probably did his best to look up believers and probably believers helped take care of him along that trip uh, and things like that. So he says, just, just, so in other words, you show hospitality even to somebody that's not the guest speaker. <laughs> it's always easy to do that when in churches, just put it in a modern setting, you have a guest speaker that's coming, a representative from some organization that's going to come and represent this Christian organization at your church. And well, we'll put them up at our house. That's a noble thing to do. What about 
the guy that just is a believer from another town that's passing through and comes and and it's just you know would like to stay someplace for the night you say well i i don't know you do we do that or not can we do that or not uh, i think i i i've shared this story with you uh before I, I do think you need to exercise discernment today because you have a lot of people. Because I had many years ago, we had a guy that came in here on a Sunday night uh, at church and uh, reeked of alcohol like you would not believe. And uh, and came in and after church then, took me aside and wanted to know if we could help him with some money because his daughter up at OMAC or someplace, I think up around there, had been dealing, working with horses and a horse kicked her in the head and and she was in the hospital and he was trying to get up there but he was from Arkansas and he had run out of money and he needed this and uh, I was kind of I was really really wary and I said I, I'm sorry but the church doesn't have any resources I mean I could have gone and got some money at my house but I just felt like that wasn't the thing to do and then, like that, later that week on Wednesday, the pastor who had, was across the street at the time, Phil, the, the two of you knew, Phil calls and he says, hey, he says, man, I, he says, we had a guy show up at church on Sunday. And, oh, this guy, I forgot to tell you, this guy was a retired Southern Baptist pastor, is what he told me. They, they had a retired Nazarene pastor that showed up there, and he says he was, oof. And he said he was trying to get up to OMAC because his granddaughter had fallen off of a horse and was in the hospital and was probably going to die. And he was trying to get money to get up there. And then I happened to be at a pastor's meeting in Othello the next month. And they said they had a guy that hit almost every one of the churches in that town with a very, he was always a retired pastor from that church, that type of church, trying to get to see a daughter or a granddaughter or some lady that had fallen off or gotten hurt by a horse. So that's what I'm just saying. You do exercise caution. But I had somebody, does anybody remember what the Ford Maverick was? <laughs> I'm sitting in the office, the very first summer we're here in a Ford Maverick, noisy Ford Maverick pulls up out front and I'm like, I recognize that car, I don't know who this is, and this guy gets out. And I, so I run around and he goes, hey, I've, I, uh, I, my cousin has a job in Seattle and I am trying to get over to Seattle. You've probably heard this story, but I'm still going to tell, finish telling it. I'm trying to get to Seattle, he says, but I am low on gas. And he says, I don't think I'm going to make it the rest of the way to Seattle. And he's, and I, I mean, look, our church doesn't keep money here. And I had $5 in my pocket, but at that time, gas was 99 cents. So I could put five gallons of gas in a car. Maverick might go through five gallons trying to get to Seattle. But, uh -huh. <laughs> but I, and I was like, and he says, he says, I'm a, I was a Christian. And so I was trying to find a Christian church, wondering if maybe they could just, they, he didn't ask for cash. He just asked for gas. So I took him down to Jerry Station down here, put $5 gas. And while, while we're standing there and Pedro's pumping the gas, I look down and he's got an Iowa license plate. First, I noticed that. And I noticed the county because Iowa license plates have the county marked on them where, where you're from. And I'm like, oh, it's a reverb. And he tells me, Mason City, Iowa. I said, Mason City. I said, I'm from Green, Iowa. And he says, oh, do you know? And he mentions a guy from Green that I knew when I was growing up there. That was a Christian. And he goes, he goes to my church. We go to, and he mentions the church in Mason City, Iowa. <laughs> and I'm just like, I know this church, you know? And it was just like, I prayed about this. God kind of said, yeah, go ahead. Fill the guy with, guy's car with gas. And uh, turned out to be 
from all accounts, as I talked with him about the gospel, seemed, seemed to be a real believer, genuinely just needed some money to put gas in to try to get over there to his cousins for this job in Seattle because he had been without work for six months in Mason City. And uh, I, to me, I was just like, you know, whereas the other one was a confirmation by talking with these other pastors, that wasn't it. Now, the reason I say all that is, we, yes, we should exercise some caution with hospitality, but I, I find sometimes believers are really, really tight-fisted when it comes to showing hospitality in these things, probably maybe to our detriment, because we don't maybe seriously ask God, is this what I should do or is this what I not should do? So two things of service so far. I'm not going to get through these if, we keep, if I keep illustrating, but brotherly love and hospitality. And then in connection with that, in verse 3, remember the prisoners. Now, I don't think, there are people that have developed prison ministries. They've done it based on the statement in Matthew 25 of, when I was in prison, you came to me and such. But those are talking about the 144,000 witnesses. This here, when he's talking about remember the prisoners, he's not talking about just anybody that's in jail. He's talking about believers that have been jailed. Why were believers jailed back then? Because they were believers. Because they were believers. In fact, who was one of the people that was involved in getting believers thrown into jail? Paul. Paul, yeah. When he's on the road to Damascus and the Lord meets him, he actually has letters that if he finds any other way that they can take them. And, it's, and in fact, Luke tells us very plainly that when they would find the house, it didn't make any difference if they were men or women. They drug them out into the streets and off to jail. They didn't kindly arrest them. They tried to make a spectacle of what of how they treated these people when they took them out. So he says, remember the prisoners as being a joint prisoner. In other words, when you're dealing with prisoners, don't look at going, hey, you're a prisoner. I'm not. No, look at yourself as a joint prisoner with them. What might be a reason a person might not want to go take time with believers that have been imprisoned for the faith. Yeah. Yeah. To be associated. And then they go, <laughs> oh, you're one of his kind? Throw him in jail too. <laughs> like what Timothy was dealing with when Paul wrote to him with fear because of Paul's persecution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paul died. Paul, Paul said, suffer, suffer with me. And, and I've told you, I, for years and years, I tried to find how Timothy died because one of my professors always said after Paul died, it wasn't too long after that that Timothy died. And it's about a, approximately 11 years after Paul dies. The church history tells us that Timothy's standing up for the gospel, that the citizens, people, citizens of the city of Ephesus took Timothy, drug him outside the city, and beat him to death with rods. Could you imagine being beaten to death? But that's the way, according to church history, that Timothy died at the hands of those people at Ephesus about 10 to 11 years after, after Paul's death. So yeah, sometimes, which goes along with the very next thing, and with those that are being mistreated, which could simply be an extension of the prisoners, but probably includes more because there were some that maybe were mistreated but had not been imprisoned. So it's, it's a little broader. And again, same thing that we said the first time. I might not want to associate with those people that have been mistreated, because why? <laughs> maybe they'll beat me up too. So maybe I want to stand aloof 
of them. I don't want to be associated with them in those things. But what does he say at the end of verse 3? As yourselves being in the body. Yeah. You're part, of, you're part of the body with these people. You need to look at that, which kind of he said really in the first part when he said uh, being um, jointly bound, jointly imprisoned with these people. That again, that's a kind of a what happens with one member of the body of Christ happens with all of us. I think we were encouraged by that last Sunday that that uh, was shared with us uh, when we were looking at talk, thinking about the body of Christ uh, thinking about the fact that when one member suffers, we all suffer. It's 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 maybe sometimes easy when something good happens to a person for all of us to rejoice. Although I've watched believers sometimes that a good thing happens to everybody and there's one person that the good thing didn't happen to them. Both of them are getting new jobs maybe. And this person didn't get that job, the new job. And that person did. And this person down here is like, I worked even hard, you know. So we can sometimes struggle to rejoice with those that rejoice. But that's appropriate too, even if we get the short end of the deal. But it's important, as he says here, that uh, we ought to recognize ourselves in the body and, and share in their imprisonment and also impl by implication also with those that are being mistreated. Not that you have to in necessarily endure that. Verse 4 is a real interesting statement in the middle of this. And I, it's real easy, I think, for people to stop here and think, well, this is kind of, this would end it, but I don't think it does. It says marriage is honorable in all, and the, the bed is undefiled, but the sexually immoral and the adulterers, God will judge. It's easy when things are hard, when you're having problems going on, to uh, not treat your marriage the way it should be. And think especially if you're married to a believer. That is even more important to recognize that honor. And if you go back to chapter 12, turn back to chapter 12 for a moment. When you're going through hardships, what's one of the, what's one of the attitude qualities that we might struggle with when you're going through hardships? Let's see if somebody can get this one. Verse 15, let no root of bitterness spring up. There it is. There it is. That's exactly the verse we're looking at. It says, and notice what he says. See to it that nobody lacks or comes short with regard to the grace of God. That has to do with the way they are appropriating that grace, which he tells them at the end of the chapter, we started with that, that they're to have that grace. He says, unless a root of bitterness sprouts up. And that root of bitterness actually can defile more. In other words, it's not just that you're the bitter one. Bitterness spreads. You get one grumpy, grouchy person, and it spreads, and other people get grumpy and grouchy. Now that goes on from that bitterness. Look at verse 16. And, and he goes, lest, this is going to add another lust in here, another, unless some become a sexually immoral or irreligious person that my interlinear translates it, literally profane, a person that treats things that are important with, about God, things that God set out and, and gave importance to, you treat it like it's just a common, ordinary thing. It's just like the doorway. This, this word, I think Jim went over this also with us, but this it's like the entrance to your house. You can do everything in your power to keep the inside of your house clean. But your doorway, where people come and go, it's a place where the traffic of the outside enters into the inside, right? 
And that's what that word meant. It's like you're treating this sacred space of your house that you keep clean. You're, it's, it's being trafficked, trampled upon as people come and go. And he says, you're treating these things like this, like Esau, who exchanged all of this for one, me for one meal, sold his birthright. Now, the interesting thing is he says about sexually immoral. Remember, what Esau does is he marries a couple of women, and when he finds out those women aren't happy for his mom and dad, they don't make mom and dad happy, he goes off and gets two more women. And his parents are like, oh, Jacob, go back to the home country and find a wife. Don't, these women are just, I don't know what it was about them, but there was something about these four women that Esau ended up marrying. But that really made them miserable. But in the context, by the way, boys, that means you always have to make sure you find a spouse that's going to really keep your parents happy, right? Isn't that right, parents? <laughs> Seriously, and it, that is a very serious. That is a very serious thing to think about. Is to, um, which I I don't think we, I I got in the I got in the little pickup truck on a Friday night after work, and I drove up and sat and had a hamburger, and I was like. You have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm like, ah, because I'm waiting for Peg's mom and dad to get home from work. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I know them. I've known them for quite a while. And then I drove over there to their house after they got home. And I don't know what they, I think her dad knew what was going on. Her, problem, her mom probably in, in terror knew what was going on. <laughs> but I was there to ask if we could get married, you know. To, and I was, was trying to show some uh, respect for their opinion on this matter. But Esau didn't do that. And I think the significance, because it does use the term sexually immoral person, if you went back over there to chapter 13, and you're looking at this statement about the marriage, um, about marriage and such, that he says, it's real easy, you know, when you're going through bitterness and hardship for us to stop and kind of get kind of lackadaisical about marriage and not pay attention to the marriage. I mean, marriage is, I don't care what anybody says, it takes work. It takes work because you have to focus on being the spiritual person so that you respond well to the problems. Because that person that you married, no matter how wonderful they can be at times, they also are going to have to be at times that they're going to be a burr under you. The person you love the most can be the person that is the most annoying in your life. Both of those things can be true. I know because I am that person <laughs> to my poor wife. You know, yeah. At least I, I hope I'm the, the person that, that she loves the most. But unless my grandkids are present, then, then, then I'm third straight. <laughs> Pardon me? Then you take the back seat. Then I take the back seat, that's right, that's right. Um, but as he's talking about this, but, and I think then, and what happens then in that type of situation when bitterness can arise, when we have bitterness and we're not really paying attention to this, that we might even go so far as to be engaged in sexual immorality or adultery. It, we, it's easy when things are bad to excuse ourselves. And I don't know how many times I've heard people over the time going, I know it's wrong, but I think, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't, doesn't God want me to be happy? Yeah, God does want you to be happy, but he wants you to be happy the right way. Not the way you think it's going to make you happy. Like Peter says over in 1 Peter 4, you can be happy going through suffering. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, you can be happy by going through suffering the way God wants you to suffer. Not going through suffering, kicking and screaming, but going through suffering and maintaining the right attitude, as Peter says. So likewise, in a marriage, maintaining the right attitude, that can be the proper thing. And remember at the end of chapter 12, 
He said, God is a consuming fire. And what does he say? Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And you have a statement very similar to that in 1 Timothy chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he's talking about the proper relationship in these types of things. And uh, he says, likewise, over there, God, God's going to deal with those people. I, I talked recently here with somebody in one of the Bible studies. <clears throat> we were talking about, talking about discipline. Like last week, we had communion. And we didn't really talk about discipline last week. We just focused on what is the body primarily and how the body interacts. But it's interesting that when we talk about God's discipline in the people, that one of the passages that he meant that is mentioned is people have an, an improper attitude towards the body. And he disciplines people, some people to the point of death. And when you go through and you look at God's discipline, God can discipline me. Let's say I've got this thing that goes on and nobody else knows this goes on with me. And God may discipline me in a way that I know what's going on. I know what's going on, but nobody else has a clue. But if I'm doing something on a public level that is negatively impacting or influencing you in Scripture, those seem to be the accounts where people really are disciplined by God in such a way as to try to make let everybody else see what's going on. Because he wants the rest of them to say, what they're doing is having a real negative impact on the body. Now, my, a private thing with me can have an impact on the body of Christ. Don't get me wrong. But he's talking about things that are more overt, usually. And if you have somebody that is acting this way with regard to a spouse or something like that, that's overt. That's involving. That's affecting somebody else directly. Understand. So, and so... That would be something in which it would definitely fall under the, the more severe form of God's judgment with regard to believers. So, I think that's interesting he puts that in there, because we wouldn't think of that as priestly service. Uh, but I was, but I, this is the way you treat your marriage, the way you treat your marriage to another believer can be an act of priestly service, because it's service to people. Verse 5, he says... And do not let your manner of life be one that loves money, but be content with the things that are that you have or the things that are present. For he has said, by absolutely by no means will I ever leave you, nor will I ever abandon you. Same word that he used for people abandoning the assembly. So it is confident to say, the Lord is my helper. I am not afraid of what man will do to me. He says, let your way of life be greedy, be without greed. Greed Kind of like back in the context when we're talking about bitterness, it's infectious. If I'm, if I'm scheming all the time, if I'm always scheming and trying to come up with ways to make more money and try to get rich and this is the way I can do this or I'm, uh, well, I had a friend that always was talking to me, hey, I got this great thing and I can, boy, I can make a lot of money and I'm only going to have to work three months a year. And you know, and if God, if you're going through life and God puts you in a situation where without you having to chase it like crazy or any, or just having to chase it, and God makes it so that you can make all the money you need to live on in only three months, I don't think that there's something wrong with that. But if you're trying to find that, if you're looking for that, if you were hunting down and scheming on those things, you're going to have problems. It's going to bring a lot of grief to you. And he says, your way of life ought to be one 
that is free from that love of money. And that's a priestly service, learning to be content with what, whatever you have. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 4? I'm content when I'm hungry, and I'm content when I'm full. I'm content either way. Most of us could say, yeah, I'm content when I'm full. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can be content when I'm full, but when we're hungry? No, we struggle with that, don't we? We don't like to be hungry. We don't like to think, you know, the only thing that we're going to have for, well, I've told you the story, but one of my seminary professors, where, um, I don't know if they had two kids or three kids at the time. Maybe they had all four of their kids by this time, but they were, they were, uh, they, they had had some unexpected bills that came up. They had to pay all those. They had no money. They, they would have milk delivered every day, but they didn't have to pay the milk bill till the end of the week, and he would get paid at the end of the week so they could pay their milk bills. So they knew every day that they were going to have a half gallon of milk delivered to the house. Last charge, remember those? Maybe, it was, maybe they got two of those. And somebody at church brought them a bushel basket of tomatoes. So do you know what the six of them lived on or five of them? I don't remember how they fought. Like I said, all the kids were there for a whole week. They lived on milk and tomatoes, three meals a day, milk and tomatoes, milk and tomatoes, milk and tomatoes. He said, we were pretty tired of milk and tomatoes at the end of the week. But at the same time, they were also thankful that they had milk and tomatoes. Dwight tells this story, tells his story. I'm going to pick, or take one, take Dwight's story. But he said his kids asked him as adults, powdered milk when we were kids for a while, when they were kids for a while. It was because that's all they could afford for a while. They went through that, you know, and I remember having powdered milk as a kid, you know, because that's all we could afford for a, for a stretch. And I, I've never asked my parents on that, but I do remember that that's what we had for a while. Um, so you can be content with a lot easy, usually. <laughs> I think, I think people aren't content with a lot, actually. It seems like people, when they get a lot, they become even more greedy because they even want more. I think it actually just makes it even worse. That's my opinion. When I watch myself and I've watched other people that when they get it, you'd think that they would calm down and be content, but it seems like they just press even harder uh, as an observer and watching myself. But that can be a way of priestly service. Priestly service to other people being content with what you have. Because in the same way that bitterness infects, people that are greedy can infect others. And everybody else is watching and they're seeing, boy, they're going, just, they got to take that trip and they got to buy that car and they got to have that house and they got that, da, 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 fill in all the blanks. And they're going, why can't I? And so then they're, they start chasing after that because they want that vacation and they want that house and they want that car and they want whatever it is. Which is why I really think, not just here in the United States, but worldwide, there are a lot of churches, and I do that in carefully because some of them, you don't hear the gospel at all, that really teach a prosperity gospel. Because people like that. They like, a, they like a message from the Bible that tells them, this is God's secrets to how you can be prosperous and how you can get the best life God promises. And by best life, they don't mean a spiritual life. They mean material life. But he says, be content with the things that are present. Whatever you have, that's enough. Whatever you have is enough. And, part, and the background for that, as we've already said, is Christ doesn't abandon us. 
So whatever people might do, I'm not going to fear them. Because what were the things that they would do that would affect that? They had had permission under the high priest at that time to take possessions from people. So even if you worked hard, those people might come around and just take more. And so as a result, they needed to know that the Lord still was their helper. He was still there, the one that would answer their cry of help. And then, of course, I have to get the last one in before we close. Verse 7, and remember those who are leading you. <laughs> you got people in, your, in this church that lead you. They're the ones who he says, the ones that have spoken to you the word of God. That's how they lead. We don't lead by going and telling you, go out and do this, go out and do this. Now I'm going to go sit at home in my easy chair and be waited on. But you serve others. But I'm going to go, no. This is weird to be an example. And says, so when he goes on, he says, looking off then to that literally the outcome of their manner of life you imitate their faith. In other words, if you look at them and you see that they actually do serve, they teach you the word and they teach you how to do priestly service. They teach you how to serve others. And you see that they do that, that they actually take time with other people, that they do do these things, that they do show hospitality. They share their food with you. They honor their marriage. When they're doing these kind of things, when they're being content, when they're doing these things, he says, you look at their, the outcome of their faith and you imitate that faith, the outcome of their conduct, their daily life conduct. There's one other thing he says about them and look down to verse 17 here, because there's one other detail. This is down the road, so it's a little separate from these specific statements about priestly service, but he says, Obey or be persuaded by the ones that are leading you. Same word that we have back in verse 7. And submit, literally would be to them, for they are watching for your souls. Now the soul is where we go through all the turmoil and everything when problems are, when, when we're having difficulties. And if you went back to the end of chapter 6, he says that there's a hope out there that anchors that soul. And he tells us in chapter 4 that the word of God is going to help and it's going to make a division here between the soul and the spirit. But sometimes you need to decide, when is this my soul and my emotions and when is this what I know in my spirit God wants me to do? And you sometimes need that division there to help you see that. And when you see that then, you can then with your spirit anchor that soul in the hope that you have in heaven. And so they're going to be dry, taking you. Now, they can't anchor your soul there. They can't do that. But they can show you where it is, and they can show you how to, how you can, as it were, drop your anchor there. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You drop anchor here, but you're kind of, but you, like you're dropping your anchor up there where Christ has entered in into the right hand of the Father. And he goes, he says, because they're ones that are going to give an account. And that they might do it with joy and not with groaning. And I don't think that that account is before God. Because I do not think before God I give an account for you. And I don't think I give an account for what I do based on whether I could get you to perform. I'm responsible whether I'm faithful in doing my, what God's given me to do. Whether anybody falls in line or not. I've removed, case in point, today to remind myself God wants me to be faithful in carrying this out and love the saints 
even if it's only one saint that shows up. I've had that happen. I've told you many years ago. That happened a couple of different times the first couple of years we were here that the only people that showed up was my family. And I sat and I preached to my wife and my five and six-year-old daughter at that time. She was five and six at two different times that happened. Because just nobody else showed up. But you didn't go, well, we're not doing it. <laughs> I'm not wasting my time on you, hon. <laughs> no, she's a believer. Took time with her. That's what you did. And you, you demonstrate that. So I'm not responsible for whether or not other people perform well. I'm responsible for whether I'm carrying out what God's given me to do. And I think that's true for each and every one of us. You have the gift of encouragement? You're judged on whether you take opportunities to encourage, not whether or not the person actually, you succeed in getting them encouraged. You sometimes cannot get another person to get their, you, you can work really hard to get another person to get their head in the game. And you're gonna walk away feel like you've beaten your head against the wall can't do that so what is the account I would say the account has to do with other believers you need to be able to what you want to be able to do as a leader is to be able to say hey let me tell you this great story about how God was working in the lives of these people over here he does that with the Corinthians doesn't he when he talks about the Philippians yes and he can say with joy they begged me to let them participate in helping these, these people that were impoverished. And they were really impoverished, but they still want to do that. And you have those examples. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, man, we got to the cities after we'd been there, and the word of what how you guys changed echoed out ahead of us. So the people were like, tell us what's going on. They wanted to know. And you can give an account. But what do you have to do if you give an account and people are like, Hey, what's and like? Well, we're, we're in a, how do pastors put a positive spin on it? We're in a growing time. <laughs> oh, a lot of people are coming. No. Well, what do you mean growing? Well, people are trying to learn to practice the Christian life. It is, you know, we have ups and downs. We do. I'm trying to say you put a positive. You try to put a positive spin sometimes when believers are like these Hebrew Christians are really struggling with serving really struggling with putting others ahead of themselves instead of just looking out for themselves. And he says, you want to do, they, you want them to be able to enjoy giving account with regard to what's happening. Not, oh, yeah, it's, oh, it's hard. It is so hard. Oh, just one person. If just one person, you don't want it to be like that. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you today to stop and think about Hey, I'm part of a kingdom. I have grace. Being part of that kingdom, I can serve as a priest. What does some of that look like? I can really be warmly friendly with other believers. I can be hospitable with other believers. It's an opportunity there. I can remember those believers that are suffering for the faith in varying ways. I can be one that honors my marriage and the marriage of others in this way. I can remember that I have what I need, that what God wants me to have at any given moment in time. I can be content with that, and I don't have to be greedy, and I can live that before other people. And I can honor the leaders. I can pay attention to those people in a way that's positive. And I think a good way to honor the leaders is to live out what they're teaching you. <laughs> is a good way to do it. I've heard pastors... I, I, well, 
there was I think it was a pastor that uh, that Jim knew at one time that I remember him telling me he was at a point once that the church wanted wanted to give this pastor a raise. I might be getting the wrong person in here, but the church wanted to give this individual a raise, and he honestly he told me I told him I don't want a raise. I just like you people to actually start living what we're teaching here at, at church. Because he was like so frustrated with all the the fires and problems that he was constantly dealing with that people weren't actually living the Christian life out. And he's not saying that nobody did, but you know, when you have a predominance of people that stubbornly are doing their own thing, uh, and they just church is kind of a religious thing, climbing the ladder of religious respectability type thing, if that's all they're doing, it was frustrating to him. And uh, I can I can really appreciate how important that that idea would be. Anyway, Father, thank you for the time you've given us together. Thank you for the attention of these people. And ask that this would not just have been an exercise in looking at some words and looking through some verses, but for us to seriously, each of us, think about our own lives and whether they reflect these kind of things, whether we are those that really do rest at your right hand at the throne of grace and empowered there by your spirit, whether we are those that are serving others as, as priests. And uh, we thank you for that privilege of doing so. And uh, amen.